I just want to begin by asking you a question. When you hear the word fear, what what immediately comes to mind? Maybe the fear of public speaking. Maybe the fear of crowds. Maybe the fear of spiders. Anyone have the fear of nomophobia? This is the fear of being without your cell phone. (laughs) Probably a lot more people have that fear than... um, Exanthophobia, which is fear of the color yellow. That's a real thing. I don't know why, but it's a real thing. Um, I remember a few years ago, many years ago, when the Orlando Magic actually were a basketball team and not, and not a halftime show. Um, they had a, a campaign. They didn't shave their, their faces for a whole November, and they had fear the beard. Didn't work. But I vowed that it still works. Um, fear the beard. That is, that is uh, paganophobia, actually, if you are afraid of beards. So if you are, you're in the wrong church. Um, so um, I say that because often when we, when we read a word, when we read through, through Scripture, we often interpret it through the meaning that is most familiar to us. And for us, when we read fear... We see fright, we see terror, Uh, things come to mind about our frailty and our weakness and the big, bad, scary world out there. We are fearful people. Uh, And more than we care to admit, we are driven by, and often we define ourselves by our fears. Our entire lives are built of our own limitations. I won't go here because I'm afraid of this. I won't go over here because this makes me makes me fearful, and we don't realize how we define ourselves by our fear. It is no coincidence that the most common command, the most frequent command in all of Scripture to the people of God is fear not. Because we're fearful people. God has to remind his people again and again, not just don't fear because of fear's sake itself, but don't fear because of who I am. And so probably along with that, one of the most important but misunderstood concepts in the Bible is the fear of the Lord. Maybe you have asked, what does this actually mean? Or more importantly, what does this mean for me? How do I rightly fear the Lord? Do I fear the Lord? What does this mean for me and my life? And so uh, we're going to look at it in Proverbs, but first I want to do a biblical, biblical overview. This is kind of a biblical theology of what it means to fear the Lord. We're going to look at some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, um, and then uh, we'll do a survey of what Proverbs has to say about it. But I think we need to understand what all of Scripture says about fearing the Lord before we get to uh, what Proverbs has to say. So with that, I'm going to show you a lot of trees this morning, meaning we're going to look at a lot of Scripture, but it's only so that you will see the forest. So there are going to be a lot of references this morning, and it's not as important that you write everyone down. Let me help you in your note-taking this morning. I know sometimes people tell me, like, I wrote on the first half of the sheet, and I tried to fill on the second half, and I just gave up because there were too many notes. So don't feel like you have to get and understand every parallel passage. Look them up later. But what I want you to see is uh, we are bringing together the, the, the theme of what it means to fear the Lord in all of Scripture. So uh, that's why we'll look at the text that we will, but I want you to get the big picture and don't get lost in the details. So the fear of the Lord, or some form of it, appears 
A <laughs> uh, hundred times, it's funny because Caroline handed Jeremy an extra piece of paper. Uh, <laughs> that's a good wife right there. <laughs> um, so the fear of the Lord appears somewhere around a hundred times throughout all of Scripture. Most of them being in the Old Testament, we'll get to that in a moment. But about, about 20, per, 20 of them are in Proverbs alone. So about 20% of the uses of fear of the Lord are in Proverbs. That's a major theme in the book. Uh, this is the Bible's expectation for God's people. And I think when we hear the fear of the Lord, um, it's almost become shorthand for a, a religious person. You ever been to a funeral and hear he was a God-fearing man? Or you read a biography from, from history and he's God-fearing or she's God-fearing, which essentially means they went to church and they did a lot of externally good things. But we miss the point, and it, and it falls short if that's all of our understanding. It is. It's, it, it's much more than just being a moral person. So let's look at a couple of Old Testament examples. First, I want to begin in the Psalms. What is important for us to see is that it marks someone who is in right relationship with God. Not just externally moral. There is, there's, a, there's a heart condition here, and there's a covenantal condition. So Psalm 25, verse 14 the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So think about it. If you fear the Lord rightly, those who fear the Lord are those who have friendship with God, those who God has covenanted with. They are linked to him. He has set his love on them. Uh, again, in Psalm 103, Psalm 103, 17 and 18, where again, David, speaking of the fear of the Lord, says this, But the steadfast love of the Lord, remember what that word is? Hesed. Yeah, this is the covenant loyalty of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. This is not something that is trivial or, or shallow. This is an eternal quality. From everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Meaning, God is faithful from generation to generation. And those who trust in him, who, on whom his steadfast love resides, they will be his people, or they will be, yeah, his people and he will be their God. Verse 18, and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Okay, so there's this, there's this link between us being associated with God, the people who fear him. There's a, there, there's, a, there's a faith and heart and trust quality. And there's keeping covenant. There's, there's a loyalty between God and man. And there's an obedience component. So you've got to kind of see all of those together. There's a relationship to God. There's a, there's a uh, relationship with God and a covenantal nature where you're linked to him and then obedience flowing out of that. Probably the most complete reference is Deuteronomy 10. It's Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. Fearing the Lord comes up quite often in Deuteronomy. That's why we read from chapter 6 earlier. But here's what the Lord says. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Here's the question. Notice the answer, but to fear the Lord your God. You can almost put an equal sign in there. What does it mean to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all his ways, to love him, 
to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Walk in him, trust him, love him, serve him, knowing that everything he does for his people is for their good. So it's knowing his character, it's trusting him, loving him, serving him, and responding to him. So when we break down the, fa- the, the, the phrase, fear the Lord, don't think of fright or, or, or terror. There's, there's a place for that. The world is to be terrified. If you are not in right relationship with him, you should be afraid. But if you are, this is more of an awe, a, a, a reverence. We sung earlier, only a holy God. We are just undone by how great and awesome he is. And when you fear the Lord, this is our proper attitude and response to who he is. That he has set his love on us. That this is what he requires of us. And we give it in return, not out of obligation, but out of joy. And out of, and out of gratefulness because of how good our God is. It reminds me, like this is like when the children in the lion, witch, and the wardrobe are first introduced to Aslan. Aslan is the lion. He's the king of Narnia. I think it was Susie. Little Susie asked the beaver, is he safe? The beaver's response is, of course he's not safe, but he's good, and he's the king. Aslan is the Christ figure in this story. He's a lion for good reason. He is fierce, and he is not safe if you cross him. But to the children who know him, he's good, and he's a loving king. And this is this, this concept. The world sees a lion that they should be terrified of, but the children of God see a protector, see one who is good and a righteous king. So if we think about the fear of the Lord, it is more synonymous with love than it is fright. Those who love him, rightly they fear him. And they, and they serve him and they want to obey him because he's good. And so this concept, the reason why we're spending so much time on this, because a major theme in Proverbs, it is foundational to everything that will come after this. If you, if you get the fear of the Lord, if you have the fear of the Lord, then Proverbs is of great use to you. But if you don't fear the Lord, this book is useless, as is every other book in the Bible. You might as well be reading the phone book. It must begin with the fear of the Lord. And what I meant, like I mentioned earlier, what's worth noting is there's only a handful of occurrences of this phrase, fear the Lord, or the fear of the Lord, or fear God. Very rarely, only a handful of times. Almost a hundred times in the Old Testament. So it should leave us to ask the question, now that Christ has come, don't we have all the more reason to fear the Lord? Why is this not a prominent concept in the New Testament? Why is this not something we see everywhere? Because now we have more reason than ever to fear the Lord. The Messiah has come. God has taken on flesh. So is the idea gone? Do we no longer have to fear the Lord? Or has it been more fully revealed? And so I would argue that the, full, that the fear of the Lord is more fully revealed, and in the fullness of time, 
we now understand it as saving faith lived out. I would say that, that saving faith in the New Testament and the outpouring of that gives us the, full, the fullest understanding of what it means to fear the Lord. And, but, and it's interesting that the concept of saving faith is not really found in the Old Testament. Abraham trusted God. It was accounted to him as righteousness. But when you see the word faith in the Old Testament, it typically means someone who's trustworthy, someone who's dependable, or having uh, the confidence that something is true. We don't have the idea of saving faith in the Old Testament. But after the cross, we now understand in the fullness of Revelation that we are justified by our faith. And our salvation through faith is for eternal life, which causes us to love and obey the Lord. This is what it means to rightly fear him. Those who are in right relationship with him, love him and obey him and follow him because he is good and he has saved them. All right, so uh, I want to pray. We're going to look at a couple texts in the New Testament, and then we'll spend some time in Proverbs. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We fear you. Because in our humanity, we should be terrified. There is a holy and righteous God who hates sin. So much so, he destroyed the world once by water, and you will destroy the world again by fire. But you will make all things new through your Son. Lord, there are many who have not gone beyond terror. They've only known you as the angry, wrathful God. And I pray that they would come to you in saving faith. Many of you, many know you, but do not rightly fear you. They've thought too little about what it means to be in awe and reverence of your majesty and your goodness. May we not fall into either extreme, the ditch on either side. May we rightly hold you and revere you, but also rightly love you and serve you. Lord, may your people be shaped by your text this morning. May you work through them as you have worked through me this, this week dealing with this concept. May we rightly understand it so that we may rightly do it. May we walk in the fear of the Lord. That we would be witnesses to your glory to everyone we meet. And it is because of Jesus Christ that we can even do this. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to look at two New Testament passages. Um, probably the most prominent uses of the phrase fear the Lord or fear God. The first one's in Romans 3. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. Many of you are familiar with Romans 3. This is where Paul is making his argument that the Jews have nothing in and of themselves to claim to for righteousness, and the Gentiles have nothing of themselves. And this is where Paul puts us all on equal playing field. Before we get to all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he tells us just how far we have fallen short. So this is Romans 3, um, verse 9 talks about Jews and, and Greeks both being under sin. Verse 11, or verse 10 and 11, uh, quoting Psalm 14, is not a new idea. None is righteous, 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We looked at this last week. This is the problem of the human condition. No one does good. No, no one has any righteousness of their own to offer up for themselves. He goes on to say their throat is an empty grave and the venom of asps is, is on their, their lips and their feet are swift to shed blood. All this is terrible. He's painting a terrible picture. But what's at the root of all of it? Verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the heart condition that drives the rest. What makes all of this so prevalent and so terrible, they don't know God and they don't fear him as they ought. And this is the problem. This is our default condition. And again, like we asked last week, what is the hope of man? What is the hope when we don't fear God rightly? How do we fear God rightly? Paul gives us the answer, verse 21. But now, this is the shift in the entire book where it goes from bad news to good news. But now, here's what's different. That was before something. This is after something. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Who is the righteousness of God manifest? as something that is invisible being made visible. God himself taking on flesh. Christ who is righteousness himself. All the righteousness of God in man. The God-man apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the answer to those who don't fear God. We must have the righteousness of Christ in order to fear God. That was the problem before the answer is here. And he goes on, uh, we're not going to get into this, this whole section, but him being the, the propitiation when received by, by faith and the, the passing over of sins, really going through verse 26. But this is the answer to our condition. This is what is required to fear God. So first and foremost, Christians, if you are in Christ, if he has given you his righteousness, you are able to fear the Lord. That is the prerequisite, because apart from Christ's righteousness, and we'll flesh this out in Proverbs, you can't fear the Lord. So here's our answer. He is our answer. The gospel gives us our, our, our answer. Um, let's look at one more text, Acts 10. There's many great sermons in the book of Acts. This is such an encouraging one, especially for us, because looking around the room, we're mostly Gentiles. So this is where we get included into the story, and the gospel comes to us. So if you're not familiar with Acts 10, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but basically, the Jews were forbidden from associating with or going into the house of any Gentiles. And Peter, the Jew of Jews, he's, he's, he's thinking that he's upholding the law by never eating anything unclean, never talking to a Gentile. And then he has this, this vision where a sheet comes down and... Um, He's told to rise, kill, and eat, and he says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And, and he finds out that the Lord's talking about people, not just food. And then at the same time, there's this man, Cornelius, who's uh, a Roman centurion, and he is seeking the Lord. Notice what verse 22 says. Uh, so Peter hears from some of his friends that he must go to a city, and who must he go see? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man 
who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nations, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. This is God-fearing rightly used. This is a man who knows Yahweh. He is familiar with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he fears him, so much so that the, the Jews think highly of him. That's saying a lot. And, a, and, a, and an angel comes to him and tells him to ask for Peter, and he sends for Peter. And, and Peter comes. And then in verse 31, we pick up, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. This is Peter speaking here. Um, oh, yeah, no, uh, this is a messenger who sends for Peter. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So in his house, he brings his entire household, he brings all of his friends, he fears God so much, someone's going to come and tell him about the living God, and he invites everyone. We're here to hear whatever you have to say. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. This is a lightning rod to the early church. Because they're all Jews at this point. The good news they thought was for them. They thought Jesus was going to raise up the Jewish empire and destroy the Romans, and the Gentiles would be off on their own. But now Peter understands for the first time that anyone, anywhere, the good news is for everyone. Truly understand that God shows no partiality. And what's the marker? But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Notice the formula there. Those who fear him are acceptable to him. How are we acceptable in the, in the, in the eyes of God? Only if we're fully righteous. And how do we get the righteousness of Christ? It's his work on our behalf, but it's our faith in his work. So you see this, this, this kind of synonymous idea that fearing God is acceptable before God is saving faith. And fear God comes up twice in this passage. And I don't think it's by accident that it comes up twice in this passage and doesn't come up twice in any other passage in the New Testament. This is to show that the Old Testament fear of the Lord that you have been so familiar with is now seen in saving faith to the Gentiles. This, this Jewish concept of what it means to fear the Lord are those who, who are now acceptable in his sight through faith. This is such an encouraging account. And so what does Peter do when he realizes that the gospel is free to everyone? God shows no partiality. He preaches the gospel. This is one of the best sermons we have in the New Testament. As we're going through Mark, this is the, the pattern of Mark's gospel as he hears it from Peter. Peter says, verse 36, In the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. These are people for the first time thinking, I can be at peace with the true and living God because of Jesus Christ. You yourselves know what happened, meaning this is not a secret. Everyone is familiar with this. Throughout all Judea, Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. We ate and drank with him, and he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to people. Now Peter realizes it's all people, and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Let's continue on. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. Notice the pattern. There is a fear of God in a man who leads his family. The gospel is preached. Ears hear And everyone who hears, has ears to hear, receives the word, the Holy Spirit falls. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with with Peter are amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptism, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to remain for several days. Notice the connection here. If you fear God, this is synonymous with the work of the Holy Spirit. This is synonymous with saving faith. You will respond to the gospel. And you will be baptized. And this is Peter's argument. Who can withhold water for those who believe? This is why we baptize who we do. This is one of the clear clear texts. The water... The significance is for those who have saving faith, those who fear the Lord, those are the ones who are in covenant with him. Those are the ones who are in right relationship with him. You can't be in covenant with him and not fear him. So we get this picture in the New Testament of of saving faith and the work of the Holy Spirit bringing to fullness this idea of fearing the Lord. So now as we get into Proverbs, the ancient reader didn't know of saving faith. They didn't know of regeneration or being born again that precedes it, but they did know that there was a quality and character in your life that shows that God has set you apart and you have set him apart and the Lord will bless and care and preserve you because you fear him. So with all that in mind, now we're going to look back at Proverbs briefly. Um, And we're going to look at what Proverbs has to say to the original audience and to us. So I want to begin uh, where we began in Proverbs with the thesis of the entire book, chapter 1, verse 7. All right, so we're going to be in Proverbs for a while. Kids, here's your, your job. See how quickly you can turn from one passage to the next. We're going to be flipping around. Help your, help your parents find the verses um, and spend some time talking about this afterward. Now, there's a lot of great application here. Again, you don't have to go, th- go over everything. Pick one or two. This is the thesis of the entire book. All of it summed up into one verse. Um, Bruce Waltke calls the fear of the Lord the key to all of Proverbs. If you understand the fear of the Lord, you understand the rest of the book. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1, verse 7, is the beginning of knowledge. Think about that for a moment. Remember, we talked about our definition for wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. You can't even begin to get the knowledge needed to get to wisdom unless you fear the Lord. 
This must be the starting point for everyone who reads this book. Fear the Lord, and that is the beginning of your journey of knowledge and understanding. Because fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the thesis of the book. Fear the Lord, learn, grow in wisdom, or be a fool. And don't pay attention. It must begin with the fear of the Lord. Uh, chapter 2 fleshes this out more. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, uh, we spent, this is such a great passage, we spent a lot of time on 2, 1 through 15, um, but I want to bring your attention to uh, how do we foster it? How is the fear of God, how is our saving faith worked out in, in a way that we grow in it and fear him more? Notice this, this kind of process here. My son Chapter 2, verse 1, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, receive the words, treasure them up, listen, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart, let it penetrate to who you are, to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Hear, obey, pray, seek, ask. Then he goes on to say that those who fear the Lord, he stores up wisdom for them, verse 7. He's a shield to them, verse 7. He guards them, verse 8. He watches over his saints, verse 9. They understand righteousness and, and, and justice. Wisdom comes into their heart, verse 10. He delivers them, verse 12. He makes them walk in paths of uprighteousness. They, and he, and he um, protects them from evil. It's a beautiful picture of God's relationship with his people. He causes them to listen. And he trains us how to do this. We, we love him and we obey him. We seek after him and he provides for us. And he protects us. And he delivers us because he loves us. All right, so that's kind of the foundation for fearing the Lord. Remember, I'm going to show you a lot of trees so we can get to the forest. Uh, now we're going to get to a lot of the trees in the forest. But before we do, I want you to think about this. I think the big problem in the world today, and throughout all of history, but especially today, and especially in the church, is that we do not fear the Lord. They either don't know him or they... They know him, and they've heard so much that he's loving, they don't have any need to obey him. They heard that he's good, they forgot he's a lion. People have been so consumed with the things of man, earthly things. We are bombarded everywhere we go. We must worry about this. We must do this. Our time is being pulled in so many different directions, and we fear letting people down. We fear letting our calendars down. But how often do we fear the Lord? And falling short of what he desires, how often have we failed to love him well and obey him well? I'm going to step on some toes for a moment. For most people, the news provides a greater motivator than the the word of God. COVID taught us this. Too many hours at home, in front of the TV, in front of all these other sources, how many Christians acted like they had no hope? And they were fearful. 
They wanted nothing to do with the people of God or worship of God. How many people have I met who have just started going back to church? That is ridiculous. We don't fear God. We fear what someone's going to say. We fear what happens to our body. We care nothing for our soul. I'm not saying that collectively. I'm glad to be with the people who week in and week out are here and worship and encourage one another. And that is a good thing. But we have to keep in mind when we look at the world around us, there is no fear of God. He is, he is all good, no bite. He's a lion. And if you are outside of him, you are not safe. So before we go any further on the fear of the Lord, I want to talk about our approach today and our approach going forward. Um, so Proverbs 10 through 30 is difficult to teach. Uh, it, it, admittedly so. This is not easy. I gave you the example a couple weeks ago. It's like brushing my teeth with my left hand. It's difficult to teach as it's difficult to read. So it's not difficult to read because it's difficult to understand, but we have been trained in exposition. If you've been here for any amount of time, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That makes sense to us. We, we, we work through things sequentially. You can't do that in Proverbs. You can do that with every other book of the Bible, but not with, with, with Proverbs. So how do we make sense of one verse to the next? And in many cases, you can't. And so if we're going to cover Proverbs, but we spend time in it, we, we meditate in it, if you read Proverbs over time, you realize there's some themes that are developing here. There's some things that are coming up more and more often, and this is how we're going to approach the book. It, it reminded me this week, um, I was trying to explain my dilemma to, to Brett, and the Lord gave me one of these um, analogies that I feel like fits well. It reminds me of a puzzle. I love solving puzzles. I love all kinds of, of, of puzzles. I like taking something that's out of order and putting it into order. You know when you first open a puzzle and you lay all the pieces out on the table and you flip them all over, what, what do you begin doing? You look at the box. You look at the pattern. And you line up the edges. That's the wise way to begin. And one piece after another after another. They go in sequential order. This piece connects to this piece, connects to this piece, and it looks exactly like it did on the box. That is preaching through pretty much every other book of the Bible. Verse 3 makes sense with verse 4, makes sense with verse 5, makes sense with verse 6. This is all falling into line nicely. Here's what's different about Proverbs. These puzzle pieces fit with many other puzzle pieces. And you can put them together and they create this picture. But then you link them with other puzzle pieces they create this picture and there's no box. This is what it's like preparing to preach Proverbs. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted you just to... just. So if this is, this is different for you and an adjustment for you, we're all in this together. Um, and I didn't realize it was going to be like this when I got in it, but it's been a good discipline for me as I'm doing the best, my can, the, the best I can. So my aim is to group verses together. As you've seen the last couple weeks, uh, going forward it's going to be a lot more clear uh, than, it, than it was last week especially. But grouping verses together to teach us. And so this morning, we're going to look at three. You notice the points in your outline. Uh, the three main uses in, in, in Proverbs. And if you're wondering how to take notes, create your own cross-reference. Write them down. Look at them later. Again, don't feel like you've got to make sense of every verse. See the forest. I'm going to give you a lot of puzzle pieces. You're going to read a lot of verses. But I don't need you to remember, to all, I don't need you to remember all the pieces. I need you to remember the picture. Got it? Okay. All right, number one. Uh, the fear of the Lord in Proverbs is a guard against evil. It's a guard against evil. 
And this actually ties together our last two weeks. Remember two weeks ago, Palm Sunday, we looked at the theme of king. Last week, we looked at the, the problem of sin. Here's our first text, 24, 21, and 22. Proverbs 24, 21, and 22. We read this two weeks ago, but look at it through the new lens of, of what we, uh, how, how we've defined fear of the Lord. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. And do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them. And who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Remember for us, our Lord is our king. We fear him, not man. And so in a spiritual sense, our Lord is our king. We fear, we fear him. Don't join with those who do otherwise. This is how you, you know how you avoid disaster? Avoid evil people. And because we know who our, who our king is and we fear him rightly, we avoid disaster in this life and in eternity to come. And it's also practical because we don't have a king, but we have government. We have presidents and senators and, and governors, and we can submit to them because we fear the Lord. Because our God is sovereign, we know they would not be in their position without him. And there's nothing they can do to us that is apart from his plan. And they're his tools for order. I don't know how that works, but sure. But we can submit to them because we fear him more than we fear the king, more than we fear with, with people. All right, that's, that's 24, 1 and 2. Let's look at 16, 6, which we looked at last week. So when we look at the resurrection, the problem of sin is us. But here's the answer. Proverbs 16, 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Remember, for atonement, for the covering of sin, we need spotlessness. It was Christ's faithfulness. It was his spot, spotlessness. We are saved by faith in his work and his faithfulness. And in him, because of him, because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness, we are able to fear the Lord. And through that, by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. How can we turn away from evil? Fear the Lord. How do we fear the Lord? Because our sins have been atoned for and the righteous one has give, uh, given us his righteousness. Sin or uh, fear, the fear of the Lord is a guard against evil through Christ's righteousness and in his strength, as Colette said earlier. In our weakness, that is how we turn from our sin. Uh, next one, chapter 14, verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. How else do we turn? Jesus, tell, Jesus told us that if you come to me, I will give you streams of living water. Fountains will flow out of your heart. For those he atones for, for those he gives his righteousness, there is a wellspring of new water. There is life that comes from us, and it is the fear of the Lord that is associated with this fountain of life, this, this, this saving faith through which we can turn away from evil. Because without it, we're Romans 3. No one doing good, no one seeking after God. Because of his righteousness, because this fountain, none of us turn the fountain on inside of us. But he teaches us to fear us, and he keeps it going because this, this fountain, this spring, ever been to a spring? Springs keep flowing. Springs keep gushing. This is something that the Lord puts into motion, and it continues in the life of his people. 
And so for us, we are saved by Christ's blood. And we walk by faith in him. It saves us from falling into many snares, these snares of death, the snares of the enemy. The fear of the Lord, it keeps us out of trouble. For many of us, it keeps us out of jail. It keeps us out of other people's beds or any other trouble we can get ourselves into because the conviction of the Lord works in us. It, it is, it is, a, a, um, it is a, a curb, to use Calvin's language, against sin. Stops us from, from sin. And it's also a, a guide and rule for believers because we don't want to dishonor the name of our Savior. So our fear keeps us from evil. But if we don't fear the Lord, without his blood, death is certain. You will, you will fall. If you don't fall into every snare in this life, you will be snared ultimately. And so that leads us to our next category, this fear of the Lord, the fountain of life. The next category is for life itself, number two. Now, they have long life on earth in mind. We've touched on this before. I'm not going to deal with it too much. But we understand that when we read life in scriptures in Christ, our life is eternal. They have earth in mind, they have life on this earth in mind. We know that our life will be forever on this earth and the new heaven and new earth. Let's look at a few verses that deal with the fear of the Lord and life. 1027. Chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life but the years of the wicked will be short. Now they're thinking, you know the Lord has blessed you when you live to a ripe old age. And maybe he does, that's great. But I'd rather have eternity. The fear of the Lord, if you truly fear the Lord, if you are a friend of his, if you are in covenant with him, if Christ has died for you, your life is prolonged into eternity. That's 1027. 1923. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. This might be my favorite. Uh, this one and then one in the next section. I love this. Let's read this again. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Okay, life itself, and whoever has it rests satisfied. It's that blessed assurance that we sung about earlier. The peace that passes understanding. If you have come to saving faith in the Lord, if you fear him and you know you have life in him, you know what it means to rest satisfied. You know what it means that the whole world can be crashing down around you and nothing makes sense and everything's disappointed and you have to rest completely in him. That is a beautiful thing. This is, what, this is the, the argument of Hebrews 4, the picture of the rest of God that the Israelites didn't reach. But we, because Christ has rested, because his work is finished, because, because he has rested on our behalf, we are entered into the rest of God. That even though we work on this earth, we rest in our spirit because we know our eternity is secure. And we are satisfied in him because there's nothing else we need to do or add to what has been done for us. This is the rest of the people of God. We don't have to strive for our salvation. We don't have to work to earn God's favor. 
Christ is the proof that God is pleased with us. And the fear in our hearts is proof, is proof that he has made us new, and we can rest in that. And that is the peace that passes understanding, because the world doesn't know that. But it also says here, he will not be visited by harm. That doesn't mean that you will not go through difficulty. Jesus promised us that you would be difficult, that you'd go through difficulty. But if you have eternal rest in him, what harm can anyone really bring to you? Martyrs will gladly have their tongues cut out and be tortured and be killed. Because we don't fear those who can harm the body. Because the one who can send our soul into hell forever has already paid the price for our sins. Who can harm us? As Isaiah says, what can man do to me? They breathe the same air I do. It's often hard to follow Christ. But would you give it up? Save yourself from a little bit of harm, a little bit of discomfort. We have been given this eternal treasure of infinite value. If you were given a trust fund, knowing that when you turn 18 or one day in the future, you're going to inherit a fortune, how worried would you be about money today? This is the life that we're given. We are given eternal riches of inestimable value, promised, guaranteed for us. How worried should we be about harm today? Uh, there's one more I didn't get to, 22-4, but we'll go on to our next category. You can look at that later. Um, so the, our, our third category is manner of life or quality of life. This is where Proverbs has the most to say, and we'll try to move through these quick, quickly. I got quite a few of these, but this picture is helpful. So we know that the fear of the Lord saves us from, delivers us from evil. The fear of the Lord is associated with with life and life everlasting. But what does it mean for us now, today in our lives? What do people who fear the Lord look like? What do their lives look like? Uh, Look at chapter 14, verse 2. Chapter 14, verse 2. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Whoever walks in uprightness proves that he fears the Lord. What does this mean? Our lives are a witness. The very fact that you care that you're pleasing God is proof that you fear him. The very fact that you desire to walk in righteousness, that you desire to want to please him, that you serve one another, that you open the scriptures, that you pray for one another, that, that, that you're convicted when you sin, this is proof that you fear the Lord. So if you ask, do I really fear the Lord? Do you walk in uprightness? Not perfectly. You could be many places this morning. You could be doing many things throughout the week. But does my life look like I walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord? And when I don't, it makes me sick. Because how could I not obey the God who saved me? Be the God who has sent his son to lay down his life for me. And out of that, 1426, same chapter, verse 26. Uh, this is my tied for first place 
favorite verses we're going to look at this morning. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. I love that. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. What is our strong confidence? Our blessed assurance. How can we be confident? Because it's Christ's work on my behalf. How can we be confident? Because Jesus says so. How can we be confident? Because the Father has determined it before the foundation of the earth. How can we be confident? Because the Spirit holds us and preserves us to the end. This is strong confidence. You have, last week I said that there is no greater hope than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it guarantees eternal life. This is why we can have strong confidence. Because if you rightly fear the Lord, if you rightly know who you are in him, what can man do to me? What can Satan do to me? What can the grave do to me? This is strong confidence. And your confidence also benefits those around you, especially your family. And his children will have a refuge. If you're in a home where the gospel is known and taught and proclaimed and applied, how safe do you think those kids feel that they are? What is their refuge like when the world around them is chaotic? And the world around them makes no sense. Your children, if this is your home, they will have a refuge. And if you grew up in one of those homes, you are blessed because of it. The fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children have a refuge. Next one, chapter 15, verse 16. We'll run through these in order to make it easier for you. I love this one too. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord, this is 15, 16. Then with then great treasure and trouble without it. Blessed is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble without it. This is blessed contentment by very strange people. We're the only ones to say, I'm poor and I'm blessed. I've got nothing of this world. I've got very little, but I've got the I've got the fear of the Lord. I my faith is in the true and living God. I am rich beyond measure. We're strange people, but it's a beautiful thing, and it's better to have all the treasures of the world than have all the troubles of the world that come along with it. Anyone can testify that life is a lot simpler when you're broke. You who are broke are like, yeah, I'll, I'll take your word on that. But when Sheree and I first got married and we had nothing, we were living off of, like, we were barely paying bills. We were living off of grilled cheese and, and um, SpaghettiOs, like most of you live right now. Um, and those were some of the best times in our lives. We had a lot less things to worry about. Better to have little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Trust me, troubles come with your treasures, guaranteed. Next one, verse 33, same chapter, 15. Last verse. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. This is Hebrew parallelism. Look at the parallels here. Fear of the Lord, humility. Instruction and wisdom, honor. Notice the order. The fear of the Lord and the humility must come first. We all want to be wise. We all want to be honored. But those are secondary. Those are fruits. Those are working out of. The character and the conviction is greater than the competency and the congratulation. 
The character in the conviction is greater than the, comp- the competency in the congratulation. It is better to fear the Lord and be humble. That is how you get to wisdom. That is how you receive true honor. Don't do it the reverse. I want to be smart, and I want everyone to like me, and I'll worry about fearing God and being humble later. You've reversed what God has designed. Chapter 23, 17 through 18. Winding down here. You see we're getting closer to the end of the book. Uh, And I didn't pull up all the verses, but I want to give you a nice rounding. Chapter 23, verse 17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. This is connected with verse 18. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. All day, avoid envying the world. Why? Because you have hope. You are a people who has a future. Don't worry about sinners. Continue in the fear of the Lord all day, every day. Don't worry about what happens to them. You have a future. They don't. Don't envy someone who has an expiration date. Don't envy someone who is approaching damnation. Amen. This is a great reminder of our eternal hope, our eternal security, not to be caught up in temporary temptation. How often do we chase after the fleeting and look at the rich people on TV and it's like, man, I wish I had some of their money and wish I had some of their houses. No, you don't. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than all the treasure in the world and the troubles that come with it. Amen. Chapter 28, verse 14. Last week, we looked at verse 13. Verse 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. This is the, the, the disposition of believers. But he who confesses and, and forsakes them will obtain mercy. How can we confidently confess and forsake our sins? How are we confident that we'll obtain mercy? How is this even possible? Verse 14, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. It's the fear of the Lord that leads to repentance, that leads to forgiveness, that leads to restoration. If your faith is in him, it will always be. If your fear is in him and that you love him, you have nothing to fear in your sin. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Beware of hardened hearts. Beware of indifference to sin. Beware of thinking that Christ, even for believers, that Christ paid for my sin so I can go on sinning. Who cares because this one's forgiven too. There may, not be cons- there may not be condemnation for believers, but there are consequences. You will avoid much trouble if you turn from your sin. And calamity will f- fall upon believers, but thankfully it's only for a season. And I would wish that you would avoid that. Uh, chapter 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare. Oh, this is good. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. How many of us have fallen into this snare? Let's read that again. The fear of man lays a snare. Ever fallen into that trap? Ever been so worried about what is going on around us, being motivated by what people think about you or what may happen? So focused on yourself that you fall into that trap? How often do we think our safety is found in political, political parties or economies or jobs or promotions or recognition? 
Take an inventory of your life. When you make a decision, what is your greatest motivation? Is it what matters and glorifies God? Or are you making that decision out of fear of what someone else may think? Or what may happen to you if you put yourself in an uncomfortable situation? If we're honest, sadly, it is much more the latter than it is the former. How often are we, are we pulled aside and pulled into the snare of hoping other people like us? I'm going to pull in Galatians 1.10 here. I'm going to cheat and go to the New Testament because we need to. Um, it'll be up on the screen. Oh my. This verse convicts me all the time. Every time I am tempted to make a decision that only benefits me or I do it because I know other people are going to see what I do, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the snare. Please man or please Christ. But if you please Christ, you will be pleasing to man. You will be a benefit to man whether he likes it or not. So we shouldn't be defined by our worldly fears like we mentioned earlier, our fears of others, but our fear of the Lord. Um, here's our last one. And it is fitting because here's how the book ends. And we're going to spend a sermon, maybe two sermons on Proverbs 31. Ladies, this is for you. Guys, this is also for you. If you're looking for a wife, this is your verse. Charm is deceitful. This is Proverbs 31.30. Beauty is vain. That means if you're pretty now, you're not going to be pretty forever. Sorry. <laughs> but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That speaks for itself. No commentary needed. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If you find a woman who fears the Lord, and there are many in this room, many, 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 encourage them in it. Praise them. Give them encouragement for their witness and their example. And we'll get there when we finish the book. All right. Here's our final application. Next book over here, at the end of Proverbs, you're in Ecclesiastes. I love this. works out perfectly. Here is how, here's what Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, is saying at the end of Ecclesiastes. When everything's all said and done, he's told you all the seasons of life. He's told you the highs, the lows. You want money? I've had it. You want women? I've had it. You want power and riches? You want wisdom? I've had it all. What's the end of all things? Verse 9 of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. We are going through right now the Proverbs that are arranged with great care. Solomon put all this together because the Lord gave him wisdom. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Solomon arranged it and he said it was true. The words of the wise are like goads, walls, and nails firmly fixed in their collected sayings, but they are given by one shepherd. Everything that Solomon wrote is from one shepherd, capital S in the ESV, anything is right. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Here is where our good reform sensitivities get a little ruffled. Beware of anything beyond these, of making Many books, there's no end. And much studying is weariness to the flesh. Can I get an amen, RBC students? <laughs> Beware of anything beyond these. Study is good. Reading is good. 
But I realized, my, like, even reading has become an idol in my life. Where I feel like I must always read more, I must always do more, I must always learn more. Be careful of anything beyond these. Here's the end of the matter, verse 13. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Do you know, you could be illiterate and be great in the kingdom of God. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Trust the Lord, fear him, love him, serve him, seek him. And read too. We can make the Christian life so complicated. To be honest, I've read a lot of theology, and the more theology I read, the more guilty I feel because I haven't read more. We can make it so complicated. Fear me, love me, serve me, follow me. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's the end of all wisdom, the end of everything Solomon has to offer. Fear God because you can't hide from him. I want to leave you with this quote from Charles Bridges, and I'm going to sum up everything I just said into two words. He said it better than I could. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence. That's it. How do we define fear of the Lord? Affectionate reverence. Love God and fear him side by side. Affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Affectionate reverence. Put your faith in him and you'll be saved. Love him because you fear him and you'll be blessed all of your days and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you because we fear you. Because you are worthy of fear. You are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. May we be guilty of affectionate reverence. May we be people, because we fear you, we turn from evil. We hold fast to the hope of our eternal life. And we walk in uprightness, in confidence, in joy. Because even if we have nothing in this world, we have everything in you through Jesus Christ. And thank you for your spirit who bears witness that it is Christ's work, that it is our new life in him. And our eternal life through him, that we are pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen.